I confess I'm not a, a great user of Facebook, but uh, I was very glad when about a month ago uh, I threw these emails. I don't know if you use Facebook at all. You'd probably get emails from Facebook saying, you know, such and such person commented about such and such person. And, you know, most of them just stream by. But then there was one that, uh, you know, sent a congratulation, you know, congrats to Luke. And I've been, you know, kind of expecting something to happen there for some time. I don't know if anybody else, anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, nice thing about Facebook, you can go and see some pictures. Looks like uh, Luke picked a very nice spot for proposing to Jen. And uh, looks like he went through some significant effort. You know, I I'm, I'm impressed, okay? I tried, I tried. My wife knows I tried. I wasn't quite, quite as creative or resourceful or hardworking as Luke was to gain that. And why am I talking about it? Because today we'll be thinking about God's proposal to us. God's proposal. This was Luke's proposal to Jen. It was wonderful. We all rejoice in it. But we want to think today about God's proposal to us. A verse that uh, made me think of that is in Matthew uh, 22. It says, uh, Jesus is, is uh, speaking a parable here in response to somebody who says, you know, how wonderful would it be for those people who get to be in heaven, right? So it kind of suggests that, you know, it's going to be really hard to get to heaven, and yet maybe some of us will somehow make it, and boy, you know, it would be wonderful to be one of those few people that makes it to heaven, right? That's what somebody said. And this was Jesus' response, which doesn't quite fit with what this person said. He says this, uh, Matthew 22, uh, uh, verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So here we have kind of uh, the opposite, if you would. Uh, a king is, is uh, organizing a wonderful wedding feast, and he's inviting people to come, right? And you think, well, <laughs> count me in. You know, kings have some weddings, I hear, right? The food that has to be pretty good, the decor, the company, this would be the place to be. And yet, it says they were not willing to come. Let me suggest to you that this represents mankind. God is inviting us into a relationship with himself, and it is us who are not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. And Lord willing, will comment more about that last verse before we're done with this message. But uh, some questions to keep in your mind as we're listening today to God's word is, um, let me back up a little bit. Let me just give you a, a quick overview of the passage today. Is that of God comparing how he is making a proposal to us Right? God wants us to be with him in heaven, to be in a relationship with him. 
God also made an invitation for Israel to have a relationship with him. And in this passage, we see a comparison of the two, right? Um, that's, that's the main overview of the passage. So the questions you would want to ask yourself and see if you can answer by the end is, number one, how did God propose to Israel? How did God invite them to have a relationship with himself? Number two, how is God proposing to you? How is God inviting you to have a relationship with himself? Uh, related to those, what can we learn about God in his desire for a relationship with us through these? And then the final question, which I cannot answer, only you can, how have you responded to God's invitation to you? Okay, with that we will go into our passage in the book of Hebrews, which will be chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. I uh, chopped off a couple of verses from the original plan for this passage. I decided it'll fit better with the next one, so Michael gets the privilege to speak on those. So we'll just look at verse 18 through 27 now. Before I read through those, I was going to give an opportunity if anybody has memorized our key verses for the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I'd like to give them an opportunity to recite those verses. Anybody? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Did you want to read them for us, Joey? If I put them up on the screen? Okay, go ahead and stand. You're going to try to say them without, without it? Looking. Who? For the joy. Was. Good job. All right. Okay, so now nobody should have an excuse after that. And there's, there's actually only three messages left for the book of Hebrews. So if you would like to commit those two verses to memory. We'll have three more opportunities for you to, to say them. Um, okay, the passage today, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For we have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. But they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for they did not escape, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, 
but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The Lord bless the reading of his word. A proposal today can take different forms, uh, as, as we're well aware of. Marriage has come to mean different things to people. A lot of people don't really wait for the marriage to start before entering what most of us would consider a marriage relationship. But it's been traditional somehow over the years, even I somehow got it, that uh, there comes a point after a man usually will, will court a woman for some time where the man is ready to what we might say pop the question. And uh, he will prepare for that and somehow try to put his best foot forward and, and try to, to make as, as, as uh, what would you call it, convincing a, uh, a proposal as he can to convince the woman that she really wants to marry him, right? Now, it doesn't always work that way, but that's, that's the general idea behind a proposal. Now, God, so I wanted to question, how did God propose to Israel? Well, in this passage, the emphasis is on what we might call um, uh, God coming down on Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai speaking to the nation of Israel. So let's go ahead and go to the Old Testament so we kind of get the full picture. We have for us a few verses here. But if we go to Exodus 19, we'll get the context of what happens. So Exodus chapter 19 and verse 1. Exodus 19 verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Repidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped before the mountain. So a very you know, far view of what happened. Remember, God called Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God sends Moses. And actually, Moses' words to Pharaoh, you need to let them go because they need to come and worship me in the wilderness. And so now after... The, uh, Moses brings the plagues on Egypt, finally Pharaoh lets them go, and God brings the children of Israel, or Moses leads the children of Israel to, to Mount Sinai. And you may remember that Moses met God on Mount Sinai. That's where the bush was that, that, that uh, was on fire, even though it wasn't consumed by the fire. And God told Moses that on this mountain, Israel would worship him. So Moses, like a faithful uh, matchmaker, if you would, went and got the nation of Israel, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, where God told him to bring them. And now, if you would, everything is set up and ready for, for God to if, enter a relationship with the nation of Israel. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will heed and obey 
if you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak to the children of Israel. So God gives Moses. So Moses goes to the mountain by himself alone first. God gives him some words to the nation of Israel. They're very encouraging words, right? He's basically saying, you've seen what I've done. I've delivered you from Egypt, right? And I've brought you here on eagle's wing, meaning God provided from them in the wilderness for this whole time. And now I have a special plan for you. You're going to be a nation of priests to me. You're going to have a special relationship with me out of all the people on the face of the earth, right? And Moses goes down, came down, verse 7, Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So again, Moses is kind of this go-between, a matchmaker, if you would. He's kind of bringing the different terms, make sure that you know, both sides are are satisfied, and the nation of Israel says, we're satisfied, this sounds like a good deal to us, right? It's, you know, the truth is, right, and, and I don't know this for sure, Luke is not here, so I can't ask him, but uh, I imagine that Luke had a pretty good idea of what Jen was going to say, right? There was probably some prior discussion, you know, are you interested in this kind of relationship with me? If I were to ask you, would you say, <laughs> right? So in a sense, that's what's happening here between the nation of Israel and God. You know, there's some preparatory work. You know, God is, is talking to them, establishing is their interest, they're answering, they're establishing that there is interest. And so now everything is set. And then in verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Mo Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blasts of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So here we have a description of the actual event. That's what was uh, quoted for us in the book of Hebrews. It wasn't what you perhaps would have expected, right? You would think God would come and, and show them the wonderful things he had in mind for them. Um, you know, try to show things that, that, uh, that, that look nice and, and smell nice and sound nice, and that's not what happened, right? God came down in smoke, in fire, and a great earthquake. Why did God do that? When, when a person makes a, a proposal, ideally, right, now again, a lot of this can be covered beforehand, 
there's usually you try to reach some understanding with the other person, like, you know, when I marry you, I expect that you'll be faithful to me, right? And I'll be faithful to you, right? Now, we might assume people understand that, but that was something God wanted to clear with the nation of Israel because that wasn't the standard relationship people had with their gods, right? In Egypt, there were many gods, right? And God wanted to make clear that they understood that their relationship with him was exclusive. It says this, if we were to now go on to what God actually said, Exodus chapter 20, he said, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Right? So God is an exclusive God, and the people had to be faithful to him. Right? Now, if I was to go on, you know what's coming? It's the rest of the Ten Commandments. God is describing his holiness. This is the basis for a relationship with me. You must be holy, for I, your God, am holy. I don't know if Luke said anything like that to Jen, but, you know, he could have. These are my standards. This is the way I am. Now, again, they had a chance to know each other beforehand, so, so Jen knew what she was getting into. Luke didn't have to spell it all out, right? But here God is spelling out, this is the kind of relationship I am talking about with you, right? That's why God is coming upon the mountain in this way. They refer to it in Hebrews. It's in another place in Exodus, it says, for they could not endure what was commandment and commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. God was holy, and he was not to be touched or defiled by sin in any way. So what was God trying to show to the nation of Israel through this proposal? He showed to them his power and his holiness, their need to be holy in order to have a relationship with him. And ultimately, even though it would take about a thousand years to get the message across, that they needed a savior. The truth is the nation of Israel was sinners as we are. And we cannot enter a relationship into a relationship with a holy God through our own holiness because we're not. And so we need a savior. He says this, when he talks about uh, John the Baptist coming, he says that he will come in the power of Elijah and he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God was working with the nation of Israel to prepare them for himself. He needed to show them that they were sinners, he was holy, and they needed someone to mediate between him and them, to bring them into a relationship with himself. And that preparation is starting now with this proposal. God is showing them the kind of God he is, the kind of relationship that he needs, he wants to have with them, 
and is therefore preparing them to receive the one who will make that relationship possible. So that's God's proposal to Israel. How does God propose to us? It says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So first of all, how have we come? Here I am standing on the earth, right? I have never been in the new Jerusalem. I only know one person who has, and he's no longer on the earth, <laughs> right? That would be the Apostle John. So the way we have come to it is really, really through the, the Bible bringing us the message. So only a relatively small fraction of the nation of Israel had the privilege of being there at Mount Sinai when God spoke to them. The rest had the word brought to them. Now, the whole congregation was there at the time, but for a thousand years their descendants had to live on the record of those people. Right? So they had to tell their children and their children's children what they saw and the kind of relationship God wanted to have with them. Right? In the same way, we today don't get to visually see heaven and what heaven is like, but we have it recorded in the Bible for us. So we, we come to Mount Zion, so to speak, through the Scripture. The Scripture shows us the things that God has planned for us. Now this is a little bit more... That's a typical proposal. I could imagine Luke coming before Jen and proposing to her, and she says, but Luke, where will we live? And, uh, you know, Luke could, uh, could not answer with the description we have for us here. What is the heavenly Jerusalem like? It says, it gives us a, a little bit of a description of it in Revelations chapter 21, and we won't uh, spend the time to read the whole uh, chapter, but if we just start, it's uh, Revelation 21 verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That sounds actually a lot nicer than when God came down on Mount Sinai with fire and smoke. Now, in both cases, it is God's revealing himself. God is an exclusive God, and our relationship must be with him and with no other God. And God is our holy God. Our relationship must be based on holiness. 
And yet in this passage, we start seeing the fact that God has a beautiful place prepared for us. If we were to go on in the chapter, it talks about just the very foundation of the city. So this is what the city is built on, is precious stones. And it names 12 different kinds of precious stones that, that, that the uh, city itself is based on. The streets are made of gold, as pure as glass. Or I think it says as clear as pure glass. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful city that God has prepared for you and for me to be with him in. So that sounds, that's now sounding pretty good. Now Jen might also say to Luke, but look, you know, if, I'm, if I am to follow you, right, and go to the place that you have prepared for me, who else will be there? I might get lonely. Well, not so in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem, which God has prepared for us. He tells us that in there, there will be an innumerable company of angels, right? So we have a few angels mentioned in the Bible. So if you were to, to go from Genesis to Revelation, I think there's a couple of names, Michael and Gabriel, of angels that are given to us, good angels. Lucifer, he was a fallen angel. That's where Satan... But in Revelation, it talks that around the throne of God, there were tens of thousands times tens of thousands. In my math book, that comes up to hundreds of thousands of angels that are going to be there in heaven. So no, you will not be lonely with God in heaven. There will be many angels. And then it goes on, and it says, uh, it will also have uh, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So this is now describing the church, right? So it's not just going to be me there with God. It'll be all believers. All of you guys who have believed in the Lord Jesus will be there with me in heaven, right? I will not be lonely in heaven. And it extends beyond Calvary Bible Chapel. It'll include every true believer on the face of the earth, right? That's a lot of people, probably millions of people around the world today. But it doesn't just include believers today. It includes believers in the past, and in the future, if God was to uh, save people after I depart from this world, I'll get to know them as well. So there will be uh, many millions, very likely hundreds of millions of people in heaven. You'll get to meet uh, Peter. You'll get to meet Paul from the Bible. That's pretty good. Uh, you'll get to meet the author of the Hebrews. We'll finally find out who wrote the book. Uh, <clears throat> so you will not be lonely in heaven. And then it goes on and it says that it will also have the spirits of just men made perfect. It's generally believed to be talking about Old Testament saints. So it's not just going to be people from the New Testament of the Bible. It'll be people from the Old Testament. So Abraham will be there. We'll be able to talk to him as we were talking about him this morning as being a friend of God. How was your relationship with God? Can you tell us more than what was in the scripture? And he'll be able to tell you more. And uh, King David, any, anyone you want to talk to in the Old Testament will be there, right? And uh, because we will have eternity, we will have time to spend time with all of them, right? And, and find out as much as we want to know about each of their lives. You will not be lonely in heaven. Now, you may have a concern here and say, you know, but what about my sin? Right? Yes, heaven is a wonderful place. I want to be there. Right? I mean, the place sounds beautiful. The company sounds 
delightful, but I have a sin problem. How am I going to make it to heaven? And there it has for us also Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That is Jesus' job. He was sent by God to save his people from their sins. It's Jesus that needs to qualify me for heaven. It's not something that I can accomplish on myself. And Jesus is the effective mediator. That's what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews. Right? He was the high priest that could really enter into heaven and really have an effective intercourse with God. He became a man so he could understand exactly where I stand, all the issues I'm dealing with, and bring them, represent me faithfully before God and compassionately before God. He is the, the perfect mediator, and he has the perfect offering to make, it says, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. If you remember, in the old covenant, they would kill animals, and they would take the blood of animals, and they would sprinkle it on the tabernacle, on the vessels of the ministry, so that sinners could enter the presence of God, right? Well, in heaven, we have not the blood of animals, there is the blood of Christ. Now, I don't know that we will actually see any of Jesus' blood in heaven, but the effect of it is in heaven. I will be allowed entry into heaven because of Jesus' shed blood for me. He paid the penalty for my sins. It says in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus died the death that I deserve. And that is why I can enter heaven. That is why I can live in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the beautiful city that God has made. That's why I will be fitting company for everybody else, to angels in heaven and to uh, New and Old Testament believers who have be themselves become perfect. Jesus is making all of us perfect so that we can be in, uh, in heaven, in perfect fellowship with him and with everybody else. That is God's proposal to you. If you have not yet <clears throat> accepted that this is God's invitation for you, he wants a relationship with you, right? Just like Luke desired a relationship with Jen for her to be his wife. Je Jesus wants you, if you would, to become united to him in the relationship that marriage was designed to represent. A closer relationship even than marriage that he wants you to have with him. Okay, that's God's proposal for us in the New Testament. The third question is, how have you responded? In verse 25 it says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. That tells us that you have an opportunity to refuse God. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell you, see that you do not refuse him who speaks if you didn't have that. You have the choice of whether to accept God's invitation into a relationship to himself. Now, Jen had a choice. She could have said no to look, right? We're all delighted she did not. But she had the choice that she could make. Now, we want to think about that in our case uh, do we have an alternative? Jen had an alternative, right? She could have said no, and who knows, maybe she would have had a better offer from somebody else, you know, a few years down the line or a few months down the line. In our case, is there another offer? Should we say no to God because there's another offer that we can expect that might be better than the offer that God has for us? It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape 
who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him, away from him who speaks from heaven. We see that Israel did not really have a choice, right? In the case of God, he, he made them the offer, but the truth is there was no other God on the earth. There is only one creator who made us, right? There is only one God that you need to be right with. If, if you reject him as Israel, eventually in their history rejected God and started following after idols, they were judged by God. There was no escape from them, uh, from God's judgment. There is, um, those gods uh, were not real gods. They could not save them from God. They did not have a power to sustain the nation of Israel. They depended upon God uh, in a similar way to us. He says, whose voice then shook the earth. Every time God spoke one of the words of the Ten Commandments, the earth vibrated in response to his words. What does that tell you when someone is speaking to him and the earth vibrates in echo? It tells you that this is the one who has all power. right? This is the one who is sustaining uh, the, the world on which I stand. This is the one who is sustaining me. If he stops sustaining me, I will cease to exist, right? Uh, there is no alternative uh, to God. He says, uh, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So in the case of Israel and Mount Sinai, the ground shook. But God makes a prophecy in the Old Testament saying that one day he was going to shake the heaven as well. Now, the author picks up on the words in that, um, in that prophecy where it says, yet once more. And, and he says, that means that when God is done shaking the heaven and the earth, there will be nothing left that is not of an eternal uh, um, I guess, consistency, or that will not last forever. Uh, if I take uh, the rag in front of my house, where people rub their feet on as they enter my doorstep, it's very dirty, right? It has dust on it. So I will pick it up, and I'll shake it, and I'll shake all the dust, but I'm still left with the rag. The rag is made of lasting material, right? And so I don't have to be afraid that the rag will come apart as I'm shaking it, I can safely shake off everything that, uh, that is of a, a not lasting quality. I don't want to keep the dust around, right? I want to get it off, right? In a similar way, when God is done shaking the universe, there will be nothing left except that which is of eternal consistency. Everything that will be left will be eternal. So it speaks to us of the fact that this world is of a temporary value. People today may refuse God. They understand God is inviting them to a relationship with himself, but they might say, you know, I much prefer my, my uh, Nintendo game, right? I like playing that. Or I much prefer my job. I have a job. It's a good job. It's satisfying. I get paid well. People think highly of me there. Or I prefer my social life. I like going to parties. 
uh, with all of my friends. You know what? When God is done shaking, all these things will be gone. The only thing that has a lasting value in this universe right now is our relationship with God. And uh, so if we, if we think we have an alternative to God, we can say no to God because I have all these other things in my life that make me happy. All these things will be gone. God is going to shake them all off. Nothing will be left when God is done with this universe other than the souls of men and women. And the only thing that will matter at that point is the relationship that they have with God. So while Jen had the opportunity to say no to Luke and expect that maybe a better offer could be coming, we have no better offer, right? God doesn't force us into heaven. He gives us a choice. We can say no to God. But it's a, it's a choice that... Uh, condemns us and will, will keep us away from having an eternity in heaven with God. And the only alternative is the place which God created for the devil and his angels, which is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the one alternative, if you would, to the new Jerusalem, to heaven. And if you reject God and his offer to be there, the only place that's left is the lake of fire. It's the place we deserve because of our sins. And yet God has made a way for us to escape from that. One thing I did not uh, see, and, and it's probably because I didn't look hard enough, but I imagine in, uh, in the pictures on Facebook you have a, a ring. Is there a ring? So I, I, I just stole one from the internet because I don't have uh, the real one, but maybe that's what the one Jen has looks like. Uh, when I had to get, when I was going to propose to my wife, I went to a jewelry store and I purchased a diamond ring. And uh, I, I kind of went by this rule of thumb that they give. I think they say something like, uh, make a three month last forever. So I think the suggestion is you should spend three months of your salary to buy a ring. So I, I think it was some significant amount of money representing a significant amount of my income. And, uh, so, so, so my wife, when my wife saw the ring that I made, I gave her, she knew what that represented to me. It represented a sacrifice, right? It showed her that I loved her. If I gave her a ring I found in a cracker, a cracker jack box, right, she may not be impressed. And I would say, well, it's a perfectly good ring. You know, it fits your finger. It symbolizes my love to you. And she might say, well, you know, it probably shows you don't love me very much, right? If, that, if that's how much you love me, then, you know, I'm going to wait for a better offer. If, uh, if uh, someone like Bill Gates was to give a ring like that to his wife, and let's say that ring costs $10,000, uh, his wife would not be very impressed because for Bill Gates, $10,000 is not a lot of money. Right? So it's not really uh, demonstrating a lot of love. Right? So our love to people is demonstrated by our sacrifice for them. And so we see how much God loves us by his sacrifice for us, what he was willing to do for us. I'll go back, if you would, to that uh, last verse in that parable from Matthew 22 that we started with, 
There it says that again he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. So the king has been preparing for this wedding for his son. He wanted people to come, he wanted people to really enjoy the food, and so he put out a significant investment into this feast. He had his cattle killed. He had probably numerous cows or sheep slaughtered, right, to prepare a nice big barbecue for the people who were coming to the wedding. And so he really wanted them to come. He showed them how much he loved them. He was willing to pay out of his expenses a lot in order to have this big feast for his son. Right? So this was something he really prepared for, if you would, the wedding feast that we are, we are inviting, invited to. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has paid a great sacrifice in order for you to be able to come and have a relationship with him. And that sacrifice was his son. It says, so God invites us to be reconciled to him, to have a relationship with him, and then it explained the sacrifice God has made to make that relationship possible. It says he made him who knew no sin. That was the Lord Jesus. He was a man, and yet he was a man without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never had a sinful thought in his life. And yet God took him, and he made him sin. What does that mean? God put upon Jesus your sin and my sin. And then he had him nailed to a cross, and there God poured his judgment on the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. God took the most precious possession that he had, the Lord Jesus, and he had him slain for you. He had him killed for your sin. That is how much God loves you. If you would, that is the diamond ring that shows God's commitment for you, for his desire, his desire to have a relationship with you. He was willing to pay the greatest price anyone has ever paid to have a relationship with somebody else. No one has done that. And God did that to have a relationship with you. There's just one thing left when a person offers the ring to, to the bride that he chooses. What is that? Accept, right? He's waiting for the yes. The Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for a yes from you. If you haven't yet accepted his offer for eternal life to have a relationship with himself, he is offering that relationship to you now, and he is just asking for those, for that three-letter word, yes. If you haven't yet said yes to the Lord Jesus, Will you say yes to him today? Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you would want to have a relationship with us. We uh, consider the fact that uh, we are uh, sinners and we deserve to be in the lake of fire if that's where we end up. We know it's, it is because of what we have done. And yet we recognize that that's not your desire for anybody in this room. Your desire is for everyone in this room to know you personally, to have eternal life, to be with you in heaven. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you help those in here who have not yet put their faith in you to do so today, to say yes to you, the Lord Jesus. In your precious name we ask. Amen.